Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to this podcast series from the Bank of England Youth Forum around digital currencies and the crypto ecosystem. Uh, today, we will discuss about Web3 and the future of the crypto ecosystem. And today, we have a very special guest, um, Karsten Sorensen. Welcome. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from Denmark. I've uh, lived in the UK since around 1995-96, but I've worked at the LSE since 1999. Originally a mathematician and computer scientist and have worked in the field of what's called information systems and innovation uh, my entire career. Uh, I've done lots and lots of work over the years with people from industry. Uh, up until 2008, my main research was to try and understand what happens when companies become digitized. But since 2008, I have focused almost exclusively on digital platforms and ecosystems and underlying digital infrastructures and how, how digital technologies can support uh, companies, coordinate activities between them. And since 2018, where I, together with Enrico Rossi, who's also part of this series, uh, we jointly designed a cryptocurrency disruption course an online certificate course for the LSE. And as a result of that course, I sort of decided to um, to make uh, distributed ledger technologies sort of a core part of my research agenda until I retire in some years from now. Awesome. And yes, the episodes of Enrico Rossi are, are really good. Highly recommend them. So when people talk about crypto, uh, the crypto ecosystem, they often mention this Web3. Could you tell us a bit more about what Web3 actually is? Yeah, so the easiest is to talk about Web1 and Web2 and Web3. So what happened in the first days of the internet, what was characteristic in the uh, early 90s, in particular 1993, was the emergence of Tim Berners-Lee's web protocol that allowed us to have a Netscape Navigator application that then could use for email and for surfing. So what that did, Web1, it democratized reading of the digital information that the BBC and many others could just post information and we could all just consume it. Uh, that sort of changed fundamentally around 1996, 97, 98, with the advent of blogging and of ICQ, which was an instant messaging service and many, many other services that sort of led to the dot-com boom uh, with both electronic commerce, but also with these emerging social networks. So that's Web2 is highly interactive. So it democratized both reading and writing. The point was there that the, the open internet knows only about data and not about value or rights or assets. So that means you need trusted third parties to be custodians of this. So the idea is if somebody emails you from uh, somewhere in the world and says, do you want to buy a lawnmower? You might be slightly suspicious. Whereas if somebody uh, puts a lawnmower on eBay, you think, perfect, I buy that lawnmower. And if it doesn't arrive, I get my money back. So Web2 had this huge advantage that created these trusted third-party platforms that could help people exchange goods and services with each other, which was brilliant because we didn't know that data was really important. <laughs> and so what, uh, what happened was that as data turned out to be really important, we realized that there was no way we could engage over the internet without either risking not getting the lawnmower because the guy was just trying to cheat us out of our money, or we gave all the data to the platforms. So the idea of Web3 is that we can somehow set up a system that keeps track of rights, whether it's money or assets or certificates or whatever. But within a community, we set up uh, a system where we're all equal. 
all the rights that are encased are being tracked so we can solve the double spend problem that we can't have any fraud. Um, but the point is here, we can exchange things directly with each other that have value and are digital without having to worry about a trusted third party being the custodian of all the data and be able to manipulate the market by having access to data others don't have access to. But the real aspect of it is really just to try and see how can you have an internet of value, an internet of rights, whereas the open internet is just an internet of data. That's very, very interesting. And then, I mean, you, you probably answered this question already, but why is Web3 and cryptocurrencies, but also blockchain technology, so linked with each other? Well, of course. So the point is there, that Web3 is just a way of thinking about how we can store things that have value and are digital, and we want to keep track of who's got them, because that's the only way we can make sure that they're not copied and multiplied and, and the system is defrauded. So, of course, the most obvious thing of that nature is money. <laughs> we all know most money is, is not physical. Most money by far is digital, but it's then the double spending problem is solved by a centralized database, that it's your local bank where your bank account is that keeps track of it. The point is here that the notion of Web3, of course, started with Satoshi Nakamoto's notion or a vision of Bitcoin. And so the natural thing is to think about the kind of thing we would encode in these networks being money. Awesome. And, uh, and this links quite well to the previous episode around our cryptocurrency is a form of money with Enrico Rossi. Uh, you're an expert in digital innovation. Uh, it's uh, there's no easy answer to this question, but let's imagine we are in 2027. Uh, what do you think are the likely some of the likely future developments in the crypto ecosystem, and maybe linking quite well to the development of Web three? So lots of people, lots of people have been attributed the saying that it's very difficult to predict, especially about the future. So the point is there: if there's anything you can learn about the crypto space uh, in general or distributed ledgers in general, is that things move so fast because the innovation system is based on middleware that's ready ready available to everybody a lot of open source code that makes you uh, allow you to make altcoins and so if you just look at the the recent bear market which in you could say largely is caused by the massive growth of decentralized finance that resulted in all sorts of um, whether it was ponzi schemes or what it was but what happened was like really, really, really rapid explosive innovation that that led to the bubble burst in that sense very quickly. So it's really hard to make sort of fairly pre precise predictions, but we have the trajectory that on the one hand, we can continue as we do now, in which case all interaction inevitably will be resulting in global digital platforms being the custodian of all interaction. And whenever you transact somebody else, uh, will then be uh, in charge of the data. So this is, and you could say that then any company would have the basic choice of either, of either not engaging in this system at all and have very slow access to markets uh, and customers, or they would have to be serfs on these digital platforms. So this is one vision of the future. But the other way of looking at it is to say, well, what happened when all the big farmers controlled uh, the price of milk, for example, or the price of pork or the price of bacon uh, supplied by the small farmers because the big farmers had a bigger voice uh, in the dairies and in the slaughterhouses um, and the management of pricing? Uh, well, what happened was that in the cooperatives was that all the small farmers, they ganged up together in a cooperative 
And so for me, there seems there seems such an obvious reason, and we can already see many examples of that, where people gang together in order to remove friction and make it better for everyone. And in particular, if you have this notion of a digital market where people very quickly can exchange all sorts of complex services with each other without relying on clunky third parties, then this, this seems to like the flexible exchange of goods and service require a very flexible market. And EU um, has a, I know EU is not necessarily what interests people in Britain at the moment. The point is the, the EU's project of having a digital market. So you could not only have easy access to goods across the EU, but also to digital services. For that to happen, you have to have an easy way of exchanging things. Uh, and of course, between companies, if you can create a digital market in a consortium between a number of companies, then you are able to produce a competition to the global platforms because you you provide each your specialized uh, processes and, and, and products and services. Thank you. That's very, very interesting. And then you mentioned internet, uh, the internet of value. We hear a lot about tokenization and we learn about the crypto ecosystem. How how can blockchain and, and, and cryptocurrencies support the financialization of some ac economic activities via via tokenization? And also, in a sense, what is tokenization? Do you have any yeah. opinion? So, so that's what that's what happens. Once you tokenize, you can financialize. I mean, you could create new markets. So let's take an example. Let's imagine you were a little bit older and you had kids and you lived in a high rise somewhere in East London where everybody has kids, approximately the same age. And um, you decide that it's far too expensive given inflation is now 10.3%. You think, I'd rather pay in kind for my babysitting than I'd want to pay in real cash. So you gang up with everybody else in that high rise and you establish a distributed ledger that has a babysitting coin. And you collectively agree on what the rules are. And the rules are, if I babysit for you, then I get a coin. If you babysit for me, I give you one coin. And then we have to have the rules established. So if you have one kid and you'd babysit for somebody who have five kids, is that the same? So you have to all agree on what are the rules. And so the point is here that as long as you've established the rules, you have an actual currency. It's, a, it's an asset that doesn't have any value outside that high rise. But you, ha you have basically tokenized this process of sharing. And now, so the point is here that you try and take aspects of the world that normally is not kept, uh, not tracked and agreed upon in that particular precise way. And you could then put a value on, for example, as in trade lens. So the trade lens is a, a blockchain based system that was instantiated by Mask, the largest uh, shipping company in the world and helped by IBM. But this is now a consortium with others that engage in the in the management of this, in the government governance of this. So the so the twenty five or so certificates from container traffic management or information work around container traffic that are encased in this uh, blockchain, they are this is a tokenization of documents that before did not exist other than on faxes, on emails, on little ticks in a box inside a database, but now there's something that can be financialized and made subject for secondary markets, for example, for trade finance and other things that the, the bill of lathing, for example, is a certificate that gives you the right to open and take the content of a certain container. Well, you know, you could take that and make it subject to various kinds of secondary markets. So the point is here that there are many aspects of the world 
that of course aren't financialized like they're not recorded and we're not tracking it and we're not putting a a number on it and so as soon as you 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 track things and identify them as tokens then you can start thinking about how they might be part of other processes yes yes that's that's very very interesting and and something that matters a lot to the to the british youth is uh well artists uh, small content creators arguably they do not really benefit from the current system where maybe they they can make financial gains when they sell on the primary markets but they typically yeah. don't benefit from sales on the secondary market which is maybe in a sense quite a shame so how can blockchain help how can well we discuss about nfts in the second episode uh, we didn't have the best um uh, view on, on nfts but how can blockchain nfts royalties help a small artist for instance yeah so the point is i think the most important thing to note here is exactly that um, that nfts is now a name for something where there's a board ape and all of that stuff and I, to me, this is interesting, but it's sort of only vaguely interesting. So it's it's the Web three version of having of putting uh, your pixel art on an old nineteen ninety seven web page, like in a sense. Although there's value associated with it. So the most interesting, I think, thing about NFTs is exactly, and I would say generally, if you look at the kind of technologies that's going to shape the next twenty years, there are things that link the physical and the digital world, for example, and blockchain. It will play a key role in exactly making sure that the links we have between the physical and the digital world, that we somehow know what where the value is locked in. And so it's clear to me that while digital art is very, very interesting, and when you have a traditional business model, then there will be a, a gatekeeper that will decide what the rules are. And that gatekeeper can now, as in the art industry, just decide that that you don't get anything uh, once it's sold. And indeed, the example of many famous artists that died poor. The interesting thing is, of course, once you tokenize something, you can keep track of it and you can authenticate it. And the point is there, you can then have these secondary models that if you have a whole collection of art, you can financialize your collection of art in the same way as David Bowie did many years ago, where he basically sold the rights to any future income. And the point is that the music business has been revolutionized by the platforms now sucking up all the value. So if, if you have to have, I think, 300,000 streams on Spotify to get $1,000. And so the value is not flowing to the artist. The value is flowing to Spotify as increased equity value. And, and the point is here that if you had a collective way of looking at this, then you could be your own agent and you could set incredibly high transfer rate that anybody buying your digital art, they would have to pay you 99.9% of the resale value and you would never sell anything. So you you would have the risk of having to work out what are, what are people willing to suffer. And you could even have that renegotiable. You could do all sorts of things, but it's clear what it allows. It allows everybody to be more uncertain <laughs> on how they will get money but you could set you can say 10% or 5% so patreon is the idea that we can all have a little patreon following that gives us a little bit of money what happens on patreon is indeed that a few end up with a lot of money and many ends up with next to no money absolutely and also i mean on patreon you you rely on the centralized authority that can decide to ban you yeah, uh, as, exactly. Uh, whenever, whenever, whenever they want. Whereas with blockchain, yeah. this can be 
quite quite different. Uh, yeah, yeah, very very interesting, and maybe on a slightly uh, different note. So, as as an expert around uh, digital innovation, it's almost like you could predict the future. Future, um, almost. Uh, so. As of today, there are already two countries, uh, Central African Republic and El Salvador, that have adopted Bitcoin um, as a legal tender. Do you think, first of all, why is it the case? And also, do you expect this to become more and more common and maybe uh, the case in the UK in the future? So I don't think you can exclude countries adopting crypto assets as legal tender. Uh, but the point is there, you need to think about, so if you want to have a, a Bitcoin as legal tender, you, you just have two slight problems. One is that governments tend to like being in charge of money. <laughs> they try, they, they, they generally like, and if you look at the reaction when uh, when Facebook wanted to do a um Libra, uh, yeah. Libra. The problem you have is that I think it's relatively naive to think that national states that are well functioning, that have a functioning sort of monetary and fiscal policy system, that they are going to really accept. So you should always look at any innovation and say, what problem is it solving that the existing system cannot solve? So the, in the birth of Bitcoin, it was really born because the libertarians who wanted to be able to put money in their mattress and it would be worth the same when they took it out of the mattress 25 years later. They hated the notion that the central banks could just print more money and issue more money. So that they were they had a holy alliance with the cypherpunks who wanted to be able to send money to each other without any trusted third party in between. Now, the point is there, if you look at when Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, they split up, it was because those who wanted Bitcoin cash in a sense, they wanted Bitcoin to have a bigger block size so you could have more transactions. So the, the trilemma in any crypto asset arrangement, it is it is now, now so heavily skewed to those who just want to sow Bitcoin into their, into their mattress and then it should hopefully be worth more when they take it out. And the point is, this is not really commensurable with having something that is able to just um, basically... You, I can give you a ten-pound note now, and you said, "But that's it." So I think, I think you can largely say when countries adopt Bitcoin, well, it's because they have run out of other options, or this is a good option for them. And so, when adopting Bitcoin is a good option for you, unless you're done, you're doing it by ideological, for ideological reasons. And if there are ideological reasons to adopt Bitcoin, I don't see that in a lot of countries at all. I can see reasons for countries to adopt it because their system is not really working for them. Then there might be a, for, for remittances. But the way I look at that, if you look at the future, then Bitcoin may indeed not be the best option. As a global system, I think we can have second and third generation. So I, I think Ethereum is second generation. But something like other layer one protocols, I would see their third generation. And I think those might be proved much better but the fundamental question is that, of course, national states would want to regulate these. So because I don't think it doesn't matter how much I like crypto assets as an interesting innovation. I generally think countries should be in charge of their own currency. I think there should be central banks. And I think these central banks should have a voice because they should have everybody's well-being in mind in, rather than the well-being of a private, one private enterprise or a consortium of private enterprises. This this links really well uh, to our episode uh, around CBDCs. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Digital Town, then uh, listen listen to the episode with the bank, with the Bank of England. 
Carson, that was uh, extremely interesting. A very interesting discussion around Web3, around tokenization, around legal tenders. Um, thank you so much for your time. And what a great way to conclude this, this great podcast series. Thank you so much, uh, Carson. It was a, it was a real thank pleasure. Thank you, Arno. It was a pleasure. All the best.